Welcome to the Fly Culture Podcast, bringing you interviews, reviews, and fishing tips. Here's your host, Pete Tigus. As long as being a lifelong fisherman, Chris Haig is an instructor and a guide. In this episode of the Fly Culture Podcast, I get a chance to pick his brains about trout fishing. We cover nymph fishing, we cover dry fly fishing, and some salmon tips as well. I hope you'll enjoy this podcast as much as I have done. The mayfly are hatching, the trout are rising. The countryside looks as though the saturation has turned up to at least 12 at the moment. Everything's looking beautiful. I hooked a salmon in the week as well, which came off sadly, which is a shame, but I'm, I'm okay with that at the moment. So everything's pretty good. But my guest today, Chris Haig, how are you? Is everything good with you? Yeah, fine, Pete. Thanks very much. And thanks for having me. Oh, you're more than welcome. I've wanted to catch up with you for a long time because there's lots and we'll go into it a little bit later that I'm I'm really keen in, um, to pick up with you with some fishing tips and how you approach your fishing, which I think listeners will really, really enjoy. But I'm also excited to learn about your fishing career and what's what's going on in your fishing life right now. So how is it? Are you busy? Are you fishing? What are you up to right now? Yeah, so I am fishing. I've fished, but uh, I had a knee operation back in February. So that set me back a little bit. So I've had a massive catch-up with lessons, guided days. I have managed to get out on the uh, River Derwent to chats with a few times. But it's going to get busy. I'm, I fly to Italy on Thursday to assess for the FFI. and back one day. Then we're going to Cape Verde, so I'm hoping to fish there. And then when I come back, I'll be dropping on to Trout. And then quickly I go to Iceland. So it's going to get really busy. Your life really sucks, doesn't it? That's what my daughter says to me. It sucks to be Chris. Yeah. <laughs> Tell me something. As somebody, as an instructor, and as somebody now who assesses um, uh, potential instructors, how do you find that process? Is it um, nerve-wracking but in a different way? Because I guess you really want these people to pass and they've got to attain a certain standard. How, how do you find that being the other side of the fence, as it were? Yeah, it's. Uh, I think it, it makes you a more rounded teacher as well. You see a lot of different methods. You see people coming forward. The ones that are mentored tend to be the ones that get through, the ones that have had a good mentor. I think the ones that just go it alone is the ones that come up, usually come up short. I think if anybody's looking at that uh, path, my advice would be to get in touch with a good mentor. And you do want them to do well. You want them all to pass. But unfortunately, there's a standard to achieve. And if people don't achieve that standard on the day, then you've got to be strong enough to turn around and go, I'm sorry, but unfortunately today you've not been successful. doesn't mean they'll not come back and be successful in the future. You know, it's just on the day. I mean, when I did my exams, I only ever failed one exam. And I think that's what made me the instructor I am today. It made me come back stronger. I was never going to be in that position again. Uh, and I think it makes you a stronger person. Nice. And do you mentor people yourself? Yeah, 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 yeah. I get quite a few coming for uh, to be mentored for for exams. Yeah, that yeah. is uh, it's hard work. It's mentally assessing and, and mentoring people is mentally taxing. You know, it's. Uh, you are buying into part of their project, so you want them to be successful. Uh, yeah. At the end of the day, if they they're representing you when they go forward to take their exams. Yeah, and are you, is it sort of one of those proud father type moments when they pass as well, and you get that email oh, or you're there? Yeah, yeah, you you you're blown away. That's that's what you want. I mean. Success for them, and also it reflects on what they've done with you as well. So you know, yeah, you, it's a proud moment. It's like watching. It's like when you've taught somebody, you know, from the, the beginning. I've got a couple of clients going to Iceland, a man and wife, and I can remember Craig coming for lessons, and he started out, and I've seen him develop into a really good trout angler, really good salmon angler, and and his wife as well. I've had Karen for lessons, and last year when they they were hooking, when they were coming in at lunchtime and saying, "Oh, I've had two more. I've had I've had one this morning," and it's it's really nice to see your clients progress and catch fish and enjoy what they're doing. Yeah, and it's a form of legacy, really, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, I suppose it is, Pete, yeah. Yeah. So tell me about Cape Verde. What goes on there? What are you catching? What are you, what are you chasing? 
So it's a family holiday, but uh, it's a battle between my wife, whether she gets an extra handbag in or whether I get an extra rod in case. Uh, there's a lot of shark out there. There's a lot of big billfish. Uh, but bonito, there's lots of uh, different species, but it's very windy, very windy. So it's difficult to fish from the shore. I might try and book a trip out on a boat, but I will fish from shore. I mean, last time over there were a few years ago before COVID. And I can remember one day, uh, Benito was shoving bait fish up to the shore. And I was literally putting cast after cast after cast through these Benito. And I just could not get a take. And this persisted for about two hours. And I tried every fly at different depths. And it was just one of them days when you just could not crack the cord. And I was thinking about it for days after. But that's fishing. That's fishing. Absolutely. And then off to Iceland. And um, what does that mean? Does that mean salmon? Because it's obviously becoming a very popular trout destination as well. And it's easier to get to than it's easier to get to the New Zealand as well, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. It's, there's some fantastic trout fishing out there. And I have caught trout out there. But my trip is uh, a salmon, salmon trip. Uh, I'm fishing two ri- rivers this year with clients. Uh, on the Erfos waterfalls, and then we're going to the West Ranger, which I have a regular week on. The, well, I have regular days on the West Ranger. So, yeah, crystal clear water. It's like sight fishing for salmon. It's uh, and stunning, stunning landscape. Stunning landscape. Yeah. And a lot of different methods. You can itch for them. You know, you can swing flies. Have you uh, single land? Have you even caught salmon in Iceland? On a single-handed rod, eye sticking, pulling a uh, heavy-weighted nymph across front of salmon because you can basically sight it in the water. So yeah, it's uh, it's different and they're absolutely just machines. I don't know if it's the quality of the water because it's crystal clear, well oxygenated. There's great flow on the river, or if it's because they aren't to travel as far as our fish that come into you know into UK. The the, the nearer to the feeding grounds, whether they're coming fresher. But honestly, you catch a ten-pound fish there, and you think it's fifteen pound. Wow, wow! That does sound amazing. And hitching to me um, sounds fascinating. I haven't. I've only really fished in the the UK for salmon, and I'm either there for a short time. Or where I fish, there aren't many fish about. So I've never got to the stage where I've had the confidence to try it with any. Is it as cool as they say? Uh, well, it's it's like dry fly fishing for trout because it's very visual. You'll see each fly coming across, and then all of a sudden you'll see the, you'll see the full take. So it's really it's the equivalent to dry fly fishing for trout for me. Yeah, but once you like one day uh, last year. I'd had a few fish at the morning, and the guy said to me, let's try and itch through this pool. So, you've, you know, because you've had fish, like you've said, you might be battling away in Scotland and not touch the fish, and you don't want to risk itching, so you stick with a method that you think you're going to catch on. It's because you've got limited time. There, you've got more time, and you're dialed into what's happening on water more, and you're prepared to try different methods. Yeah. Yeah, I think probably if I was lucky enough to get one under my belt or a few under my belt, and I have done it on the Deverin years back, actually, and I really, really enjoyed it. The river was low, and it just felt the right thing to to try, and I've got bombers in the in the fly box and all sorts of stuff. But like I say, it's just so – those windows are so small that I should try it. I, funnily enough, the salmon I hooked – and the other thing as well, and I don't know if anglers listening – um, explaining that the riffle hitch is basically a skated fly that the salmon come up and eat. But the other day I hooked a fish and it was, I was fished a micro tube, like a really, really small one. And again, I've never had a hundred percent. I have caught fish that way and I hooked one. I remember that just I lost control of and but it's having the, the the confidence to try these things isn't it and it was funny that that fish actually took the fly and it was a lovely feeling and it, it, it leapt around for a bit so we saw it let clear of the water but sometimes having the confidence is a major part of that and that can come to trout flies as well can't it definitely I think you fish what you've got confidence in don't you you know you've probably got Half a dozen go-to dry flies that you've really got confidence in. You have probably, I've, I've got a box full of your nymphs, but I probably have, 
my six go-to ones before I'll try anything else. And it's having confidence in your fly, having a confidence in your setup, your equipment, uh, yeah, to go and, and try and land fish. Yeah, I'm, I'm like you that I've cut everything back and I've got two small fly boxes again um, with just some dries in. And I often talk on here that the pearl butt merger is probably my most prolific fly, although I'm fishing mayfly patterns at the moment. And you're on the previous podcast as well. You know, my friend Warren ties up these Catskill old style flies and we had great fun fishing those. They were fab- fabulous fun. I don't know if you, you like messing around with patterns a little bit that way or or having nods to tradition and old style sort of flies. Do you like that sort of thing? Yeah, uh, I do. I do like different flies. Obviously, I've got uh, boxes upon boxes of mayflies that I've acquired, but I've really slimmed back this year. Well, over the last few years, I have. I'm sort of if it'll not go in my waders or in a chest pack that I, a small chest pack I have, it doesn't go. And when I when I salmon fish, I literally have. My flies and my, lead, my leaders in my, in my wader pockets, and then I might have a bottle of water shoved down top, and that's it. I don't like carrying excessive equipment. Yeah, yeah, I th- I'm with you on that. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm absolutely with you on that front. Um, tell me then, I want to, I'm already building a picture uh, of you as an angler, but um, how would you describe yourself as an angler? Are you relaxed? Do you focus? Do you just go out and enjoy the day? Are you a bit of everything? How would you best describe yourself? Yeah, I think because I'm teaching and guiding a lot, Pete, or on a destination trip or whatever, my my fishing time is, is limited. So I would say when I'm on water, I'll I'll go dawn until dusk. I'll go hard, fish hard. But I'm quite relaxed when I'm on water. I'm, I'm relaxed at what I'm doing. I'm comfortable. But uh, I try to get the maximum out of it because opportunities are limited for me. Yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. And so does that mean, being a guide, that you are used to having company on the river or when you get those rare days off, does that mean that you prefer to um, – fish hard on your own or do you like a combination of both combination to be honest i enjoy going on fishing trips when you've got camaraderie and there's good banter and things like that you can have a laugh but also i like my own time on the water as well you know i'll, I'll just jump in truck with the dog and we'll go down to the river and sometimes we'll walk miles upon miles just waiting for a rising fish uh, or we might i might jump in a pool and your own infit or whatever uh, but yeah, I, I, that's sort of my own end space that clears my head, and I enjoy being out in nature as well. Some days you can have a tough day on water when you can't crack cord, and but you'll see an otter or you'll see a kingfisher, and it's just it's just great to be out in nature. Yeah, absolutely. Um, tell me, I've been asking this question a little bit um, of late, and music do you have a soundtrack or anything what what gets you in the mood for a day's fishing do you listen to something in the car or will it i know your background sport as well so will it be a bit of radio five live and a bit of football or or will it be music yeah i'm a bit here i'm talk sport so i listen in because i uh, listen to a, a lot of football i watched a lot of played football uh all through youth team and uh into professional uh, so yeah, I, I like my sport. I like football, so I listen to talk sport. But I like a lot of indie mo- music, so Stereophonics, Kings of Leon, um, loads of groups like that. Really, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a good choice, and I'm finding this a really good question because it tells me a little bit about you and a little bit about your taste and and those sorts of things. Now I think, oh yeah, I like his music taste. A, I'd like to fish with him, but B, listen to some music on the car on the way to the river as well. So some excellent choices there as well. So very happy about that. You said about when you're fishing that um, you'll sometimes walk for miles looking for a rising fish or you might, you're a nymph with um, a a pool as well if there's not much going on. Does that mean you're um, an angler who carries a couple of rods with them? Yeah, I always carry two. Yeah, usually salmon fishing as well. I'll have two, two set up. Uh, so, yeah, usually my go-to methods is usually Euro nymphing rig and a dry fly rod on, uh, for trout. And then if I'm sat, set up in Iceland, I'll have uh, a couple of different sink rates on two different rods. And I tend to fish quite short rods in, in Iceland. So maybe a 12-9 and a switch rod. Yeah. Nice. 
Nice. And in salmon angling, there's been so many changes, hasn't there? And, and you, you touched on um, density tips and density lines, I guess. We've seen that's been a real explosion for the, for the sport, hasn't it? The ability to have a wide range of lines to um, throw your fly to the fish. Definitely. I mean, I've been using 4D and 4D compact. I know I'm mentioning guideline equipment because that's what I get a chance to use, being an ambassador for them, and I've been for the best part of 10 years. Uh, so I actually think them 4D lines have caught me fish that I probably wouldn't have gone in past because they allow me to go down a pool, chop and change depth, get to where the fish are. Uh, they're just so versatile. And because the short shooting end speed, you're not putting your body through a lot of havoc on water, you know what I mean? You, you you can keep going all day. It's a short rod, short shooting head. I mean, traditionally, everybody wants to fish a 15-foot rod over here, but the Scandies have been doing it for years, uh, and everybody fishes shorter rods, which is less fatigue on your body, and they're more versatile because you can get the shooting heads, like I said to you, they'll come with a four-density line, they'll come with four-density, so it'll sink like that. Yeah, does that make sense to you? Yeah. Where yeah. the old traditional lines, the wet cells, would all go down together in, in one because they're all sinking at the same rate. So you'll get knocks on the bottom where the 4 and 3D lines tend to fish above obstructions but still into the teeth of the fish coming across the river. Yeah, I think it's been a, I think it's been fantastic for sport shooting. As it makes it a lot easier for people to be able to cover water. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I think one of the best descriptions I heard for multi-density lines as well is that they cut in or dig into the flow a little bit better as well. Do you yeah. subscribe to that? Definitely. I mean, I'll carry different tips. I'll carry different bodies as well. So I'll carry a floating body. But if, I, if I'm in fast water and I want to slow the drift down, I'll maybe go to a, a, a float sink two or an intermediate sink three body. So it's going under the current and it's digging in more and then it's, it's slowing the fly down coming across the water. It's giving the fly more time in front of the fish. I think depth and pace is paramount when you're salmon fishing. Absolute paramount. Yeah. So it's, it's cracking that code. Right depth, right pace. And do you move your flies? Do you manipulate them much when you're, you're salmon fishing? I've had more success swinging. Yeah, than I am stripping. Obviously, if I've got a sun ray on or an itch, I'm stripping. But I, I would honestly say throughout my life, I've had more success swinging flies. But what I don't like to do is I, I will strip, but very slowly all the time, maybe pulling an inch in at a time. And the reason I do that, I was fishing in Iceland a couple of years ago, and I had a guide who said, Chris, there's fresh fish in this pool. And he went to crawl down the bank, and he laid with his head over the top of the bank, and he could see the fish. And he shouted to me, make a cast. And, I, and then I made a cast and it swung across, swung across. And he, 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 he went a little bit more, like five centimetres more. And I kept adding, adding, adding. And he, he put, it swung, swung into the bank and he put his hand up and he went, as if it had taken, and I couldn't feel it. I could not feel the fish take. So he went, that had it, he, he, couldn't, he walked back around, he went, that had it in his mouth. He went, make the same cast again. He walked back down the bank. Made the same cast again, but I just kept more in touch. And I felt it straight away, I lifted into it. And, and it was a lesson uh, learned. And I just, so now I constantly move the line, but very, very like small pulls on it. Yeah, nice. Because it, it fascinates me that what if we're swinging flies and if we're salmon fishing, how much we don't see or we don't know um, and those, it, when you were saying about Iceland there and being able to see the fish, you learn a lot there. I was thinking about the book Topher Brown's um, Salmon Magic, where they talk about guiding in Canada, where somebody similarly is up high and not quite the same. But even on the river, I used, used to guide on the tour and I still fish that there was a bank that was really high and we could throw off the bank and then move the fly because it was very slow water. And I was just right. astounded how far a fish would come out for a fly as well. And, of course, we're not seeing those things, and very often we're not feeling them as well. And just getting that chance to have a look, you learn a lot from that, don't you? Oh, definitely. I mean, obviously, like you've just mentioned there, if you're on some water and it's nearly like a canal, 
then you've got no option. You're going to have to put some movement into it. Do you know what I mean? You're going to have to make it look lifelike. But I've actually seen guides in uh, Iceland stood on step ladders, <laughs> stood on step ladders looking into water. <laughs> yeah, nice. And you see how they react, don't you? You can see the fish, you can see the fins twitch, or when they're getting a little bit agitated, and you learn when the you know when they're going to make a strike. And just like you said, just how far they will come for the flight. But in our country, we don't have that, do we? We can't we can't sight fish in the UK. You know what I mean? So yeah. you do wait, you're just waiting for that tug. Yeah, no, absolutely. And the chance to see one would be really really cool, but. Um, also, I guess I can argue against that, that not knowing as well. But in my mind's eye, all the time when the fly swinging across the pool, in my mind, there's a fish behind yes. it that's going to bite. And it didn't that time, but it might do the next time. And that's what keeps me going the whole time. But thank you for some great info there, some great tips as well. And um, I recently saw the guideline video that you did with some fishing tips. And I wanted, if that's okay with you, to try and talk about some of those methods because we've talked about salmon a little bit as well and you talked about from a trout and I guess grayling perspective some of the setups that you actually have so I wanted to start subsurface at the moment and you talked about euronymphing and I wondered how you set up and I guess the critical part of that is the leader setup that you use and how you set that up and I wonder if you could give us a, a little bit of a flavor of how you actually go about doing that and and how you rig, rig up for that yeah so uh, I use I've got various length rods but my, favorite, my go-to rod is a 10 foot 2 LPX nymph and I pair it up with a, a lightweight 2 3 click reel and then on that, I like to, I do have a Euro nymph line on, but what I do on the end of that is I connect some ASO yellow, it's a yellow 14 pound line, which is quite Ivis, and it's just level line. And I'll probably connect, I'll maybe have 15 meters of that on, not because I want to cast 15 meters feet, but if I have a tangle on water, I've always got some more on reel when I, where I can re rig. So it's just a safety factor that. So I go from ASO. And then I have two striking, I have a two-part strike indicator. I'm constantly chopping and changing with my strike indicator. It's, it's developed over time. And, and my setups, I'm always looking to try and gain that extra margin, you know, to do better. So the first part of my setup is a core out of a shooting head. And uh, a friend of mine, Alan Reese, gave me this tip about five years ago. And it, if you skewer it, it'll curl up. So when it's hung on the water, it's curled. So the slightest movement, you know, it's either bottom or it's a take. So I like that, but you can't always see that colour on the water. So underneath that, I tie some tri or a bicolour in. Uh, and I find pink shows up really well for me. Everybody's eyesight's different. We all do pick different colours up, but pink works really well for me. So I tend to have pink in my tri or bicolour. And what I do, I, fa I tie them together and I leave tabs. So maybe half an inch, an inch long. So I don't cut them off tight. When we did the video, Jim said to me, Jim Curry said to me, have you forgot your glasses, Chris? Have you forgot to cut them? I like, know they're there for a purpose, Jim. Because when the line moves in the vertical like that, if you leave the tags on, the tags are more visual than the, uh, visual than the line. So the little tags that are on are very uh, easy to spot. So, yeah, so I'll have probably 12-inch uh, uh, Shooting head core, twelve inch of bicolor, and then straight into level line through to my point fly. So, if I'm fishing somewhere like Chatsworth, it's single fly, so I can only uh, fish one nymph. So I'll either fish a point fly, or I will cheat it a little bit, and I'll put some lead shot on point, and then I'll tie a dropper in, maybe eighteen inch, uh, twenty four inch back. Yeah, and that allows me to fish a, a smaller fly than it might be on a day where they're not, you know, they're not looking at a big lump. They're getting a little bit, uh, yeah, they're a little bit touchy, and you know, they're just so I'd go smaller at that point. But I would say, I would say my first change, Pete, is usually bead colour. If I'm changing, you know, if they're not, if I'm not, if they're not taking, I will change bead colour before I change flies. If I'm fishing somewhere like on the dawn, I might have two or three flies on. So I'll have probably heaviest on point and then a couple of droppers back. I have fished heaviest further back, 
you know, on first point. But for me, I've had more success with it on point. And I like the fact that every fly on point, as it's coming down river and it's bouncing on bottom, it's putting brakes on it a little bit. So again, it's giving the fish more time to have a look. Nice, great tips there. And tell me about, you said about bead uh, colour will be one of the things you'll change. So let's say you've got a two-nymph setup. Um, what would your go-to be? Would that be black-coloured beads? Would it be just neutral-coloured? What What would you tend to do, and what, what patterns would you tend to start off with if you're searching the water? Yeah, so I would tend to probably, I'd go with something probably obvious, like a, uh, a pheasant tail with a, a red neck, or that really works really well for me—a red neck pheasant tail nymph. And further back, I might I might try a more mundane pattern, you know, something a little bit darker, not as. But I do like hot spot flies; uh, they seem to work really well for me. So first, first of all, I'd probably go uh, red neck on point, and I'd go something with some a flash of colour. Only tied like a pheasant tail or an airs, yeah, but something with some uh, like an attractor pattern. And if they're not working, then I'll go back and I'll, I'll step back to the more traditional patterns like a, just a standard airs or a standard pheasant tail nymph with uh, a dull bead. And there's days when they work, but I must admit, if you look in my uh, nymph box, it is quite bright in colour. It looks like a rainbow. Uh, and I find that these attract. They're only, they're only pheasant tail nymphs so, or uh, perdigons. I use a lot of perdies uh, because they'll cut through water faster and get down. So, yeah, I like bright colours on my nymphs, but I will change back to more mundane if that's not working. And the bead colours, bead colours, sorry, mate. Yeah, bead colours, my first change. So I might say I might go on a brass bead, then I might change to a, a black, a white, a pink. A purple, a rainbow bead. Uh, so I'll have a, a, a wide range of different colored beads. Reds. Nice, yeah, I like to nice. Time up on different colors. Yeah, yeah. And it's funny, isn't it, how reliable, even after all this time, the pheasant tail and all those many variants of pheasant tail are, it still works well, doesn't it? Because you can make many changes, can't you? You can have different coloured wire, different coloured bead, different colour um, thorax. You could do something with the tail as well. There's so many things you can do just with one pattern, isn't there? Oh, so much. But at the end of the day, I think presentation is paramount. You know, you can have the best fly box in the world. If you can't put fly in zone or fish it through the zone correctly, you, it's, you're unlikely to catch fish. Yeah. yeah. Presentations paramount. Yeah. 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 And tell me, are you if you're nymph fishing, do you vary how those nymphs are moving in the water? So would you, for example, because I know myself sometimes what I'll do is dead drift the flies, then the next drift down, if I feel there's something or there should be something there, then I might manipulate them a little bit with a tiny little movement of the rod tip to try and manipulate those. Do is that what you do? Definitely. So like you, I'll, I'll put them through and I'll try to fish it like a grid. Uh, sometimes I'm just, because like you, you fish that much, you, you've got a rough idea where the fish are going to be. But it, on a tough day, if I'm thinking of, on the, this fish, there's got to be fishing here, I'll fish it like a grid and I'll always say to clients, think about it like M1. Let's fish hard shoulder, then we'll fish first lane, we'll fish second lane, then we'll fish third lane. So we've covered absolutely everything. Uh, and I'll bring it through dead drift and then I'll bounce it through just lift and drop, lift and drop, lift and drop and sometimes that it's like an induced take when you lift them sometimes they'll come for it yeah, yeah very, nice. very what you're doing yeah, and uh, do you strike at the end of the drift? yeah, always always, and the amount of fish I've caught doing that is unbelievable I strike at everything, slightest knock strike but when yeah. I come to the end of the drift, I always strike out. And it's uncanny, the amount of fish that I've caught like that, that I didn't even know, you know, while looking at the fly. Yeah, nice. I've sort of changed that a little bit in that I don't strike. I just sort of slowly induce them at the end. In my silly little mind, that it works for me to just slowly lift it to give them a better chance to eat it. And yeah. like you say, that set probably works 
better i would think because sometimes you sort of bump the fish it doesn't always work but i in my mind i'm thinking right that's coming through nice and slowly the fish gets a chance to to hit that but i would think the set probably does work a greater success rate but i think the slower lift might bring more into play i don't know that it's not so with any knowledge but might just induce a fish to come, you know, because you're yeah. lifting it on the. Or fishing on the Eden the other week, and uh, or bumping quite a lot of fish using a, a Euro nymphing setup, but they all seem to be taking me behind. Where usually, you know, I'm, I'm getting more fish in front, and they seem to be taking me when fish when the line were rising up like an induced take. So I quickly swapped method. I went on a floating line. Uh, and I long leader, and I fished uh, a pheasant tail nymph on point, and I put a couple of spiders on, and I had a couple of fish straight away through a pool, just by by changing setup. Yeah, nice. And that's the that's the real skill of an angler, isn't it? To realise they've got to make change. Not well, that pool's a bit dead. If you're feeling something, then you it, it's good to change things up a little bit isn't it and so right i think this is and you learned something from those bumps and it it worked and that that's something i think you know if i can echo across to to anglers don't be afraid to change don't be afraid to stop for a moment and re-rig and think about things particularly if nothing's happening and and being flexible is really important isn't it definitely being able to fish different methods uh what, what tends to happen is an angler will go to water and have success with one method, but they think that method is going to work every day, and it's not. You know, I always say, when, you, when I go to water, you're trying to crack the cord, and every day it's a different cord. Some days you will, and some days you won't. But I think it's the tough days when you won't, when you're having to think more and try different methods, is what keeps us coming back, Pete. Do you know what I mean? It keeps us hungry for fishing. Uh, but yeah, definitely the ability to, to fish different methods is, is beneficial. And fishing different species, I think, makes you a more rounded angler. You know, trout, grail in salt water, salmon. You see something in the trout world, what you might take into your salmon fishing. And vice versa, you know. You're, yeah. always, learning. you're always learning. Every day is a yeah. school I think you're right about that, and I think that's why I love it so much. Is that it? Just I just want to continue to understand what has happened, why it's happened, and if nothing has happened, why has nothing happened? And that's what I kind of enjoy about that aspect of it. Plus all the other stuff, and we'll come on to casting after we've talked about dry flies as well. But I think for me, definitely, and it sounds like yourself and many of the people listening as well, that it it, it is, that's what keeps me driving back. So yeah, this is what I want to try and understand. Why did that happen? Why didn't that happen? And yeah, for me, that's a, 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 a fun aspect of it. But let's move on to the dry fly then. So how do you set up for that? What sort of length rod are you using? Um, you know, we, we can also extol the virtues of choosing the right fly line, which we have done with salmon. And on previous podcasts, I have the importance of that as well. And how do you find that for you as an importance for your setup? And how do you set up? So <clears throat> dry fly, I like it. I love a nine-foot rod. So my go-to rod at the moment is a nine-foot NT8 guide line, and I'll use a Fario reel on that. My line that I'm using, I'm either using the Fario Elite or the Fario, uh, or the CDC, the new CDC line. So the Fario Elite is a fantastic line. It's uh, it's a spearcaster's dream, but it also holds a beautiful loop together. Uh, CDC is a great overhead line, you know, but uh, I think the Fario is a better spearcasting line, if I'm honest. So uh, that's my go-to line, my go-to rod reel and line. I use a, uh, a leader called the Power Strike leader. It's a guideline leader, Power Strike. But these leaders, Pete, they're designed to, they're not, they come in various lengths, but they're designed to turn tip it over. So I might have a 12 foot leader on, but then I might be fishing, adding tip it at 20 foot, and they'll turn over relatively easy. They are designed to turn extra tip it over. Really cool, cool, uh, you know, leaders. So I'll be fishing anywhere between 15-foot and 20-foot leader, maybe slightly more at times if they're super spooky. Again, it's all about presentation. If it's really windy day, you might not get away with fishing your leader as long, but uh, 
your office as long as possible, as long as leader as possible, and as fine a tip as I dare go. So, yeah, I want really, I'm looking for presentation. I don't, I want the flight to move natural on the water. Yeah, that's a good shout. I'm going to I'm going to search out those leaders as well when we finish. Uh, so they I, sound. I know John Norris has got them because uh, James sent me some other day. So anybody who's looking for them, they've got them in stock. Nice. I'll have a look for those. And tell me, are you? So let's talk the scenario through. You're on the river. Um, you might be at Chatsworth, but you might be on the Eden. Um, Let's say you've seen a fish rise. What's the next stages that you actually go through? So I try and it might be a short window of opportunity. You know what I mean? That that fish might only be rising for 10, 20 minutes. So I don't want to waste time, but I, I want to be stealthy. So my approach would be stealthy. I would try and manipulate myself into a position where I weren't going to line the fish. I don't like lining fish. I don't like putting my line over the fish. So I'd make a cast where I could get as long a dead drift as possible, but I weren't lining the fish. Nice, nice. I think that makes perfect sense. And then I guess what you're doing is um, adding slack, because, again, it's something else we try and talk to people. Are you somebody who likes to add slack by, let's say, a reach cast and reaching the rod upstream? Obviously, there might be situations where we do it downstream. And then, so we call that an in-the-air mend. But also, will you add slack as well um, when the line is on the water too? I'll do absolutely anything to keep that dead drift going as long as possible. If uh, uh, my first movement would always be an aerial mend because it's causing less disturbance on water. If I'm mending on water, I will if I can keep the drift going. But it's 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 a trade-off. I don't want to disturb the water too much. I'd sooner let the fly run through, make another cast and put an aerial mend in. But if I can think I can get away with it without disturbing the fish, I'll try and keep that dead drift going as long as possible. Nice. Because and... No, I was only going to say, actually, so um, if you'd seen that um, fish rise, you've covered it, and you've put all the slack, because we're always, as dry fly anglers, we're nervous about micro drag, drag, but, of course, micro drag as well. So say that fish hasn't taken, what is the next route? Will you wait a little bit? Will you wait a little bit, or will you change fly? Or what, what is the process that you actually go through? So for me, I'd probably try and show it something different, and maybe and maybe from a different angle if I could, just chop things up a little bit. Uh, I'd probably go back and, and have a go at it, and then if it if it refused that time, I'd probably walk away from it, walk the bank, do some more fishing, and maybe come back when it's rested and try again. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah, but it is. I think listeners getting out of this, as we've talked many times, it's all about the drift, isn't it? And presenta- presentation and drift. Yeah, definitely. Even with you know your own infant dry fly, whatever, it's all about presentation. So, and I always said to people when they come to me for lessons, you come and you come along with this toolbox, and you've got limited casts in it. And the more casts we can put into that toolbox, the more fish you'll cover. The more fish you'll cover, potentially you'll catch more fish. So nice. presentation is absolutely paramount. Yeah. And you said something interesting when we were talking about fly lines <laughs> that uh, from a trout and grayling perspective, you said one of the lines was really good for spay casting. Does that mean that you predominantly spay cast, I'm guessing, an upstream dry fly for trout? And if, if you do, can you tell me why and the advantages that you see for that method of fishing? So I think spay casting in general opens an all new world of fishing up to people. I think uh, the amount of anglers I see that walk past fish that are rising because there's high vegetation at the back and they can't make the cast. So I think it opens an all new world up. And it's not just about spay casting, Pete. I might use a, a spay cast, a snap cast, change angle fastly, but then come back and I might take it into an aerial cast. So it then becomes a combination cast. But the spear cast has allowed me to change direction quickly and cover fish faster. So you will cover a lot more fish if you can spear cast. So, and then turning them into a combination cast. For me, there's only really two or three times you'll ever use uh, an overhead cast distance 
uh, accuracy. And accuracy. So a lot of time, if I'm dry fly fishing, I'll use a spay cast, come back, send it into a combination cast, into an overhead cast, might dry fly a little bit, and then I'll present. Nice. But the ability, the ability to change from one side of the river to the other using the spay cast, it's not always changing by swinging flies at 90 degrees or at 45 degrees. I might be fishing upstream, and the, the line might come down left side of the river. I might snap cast, go into an overhead cast, present to a fish that's rising up right-hand side of the river, and you change your direction is like that. So you are covering more fish, and it's less fatigue on your body as well. Yeah, nice tip, nice tip. And that may be worth listeners um, looking up at some stage as well. And some of the casts that Chris has mentioned there may be of use to you as well, particularly if you're fishing, like, say, slightly bigger rivers or want that quick change in, in direction. And you mentioned the word combination cast there as well, and I thought that was kind of interesting because I would think many anglers, and I've even when I've taught beginners, because we used to teach beginners on the river, they're putting combinations of casts together without thinking about it. And I think one of the best river casts to get you going is the roll pickup, isn't it? And that's a roll cast, but before line touches the water, go into the back cast, loads the rod deeply and beautifully, and you're able to f- fly it, fire it out without minimum force cast. It's a great cast, isn't it? Superb cast. It's a cast that I use all the time on the river, especially if I'm fishing up. Even if there's vegetation on both sides of the river, you can still use that cast because you're wading down the middle of the river and as you're just letting the water roll the uh, uh, it forms your roll cast for you. So you're basically letting the water wash your line underneath you, going into a roll cast and then going into an overhead cast for better presentation. Superb cast. Yeah. Yeah, we found that really useful. And it was fascinating that you said about um, using the spay cast, but using them to go into the overhead, because one of the things I and I've used them in the past, um, but not to any great degree. But my concern would be fishing CDC flies that I, if I was just spay casting them, how damp they'd get very, very quickly. But using that combination gives you the best of both worlds, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. You've got to be careful. Obviously, CDC, they drown quite easy, don't they? So you've got to be careful. But one snap onto the water, and like I said, just dry fly out of it and overhead, and then present. You know, it's. Uh, it's definitely, spear casting is definitely the way forward if you want to up your fish numbers, definitely. Nice. And that brings us, segue beautifully along, onto Spayworks. Um, can you tell me a little bit about Spayworks and, and what that is? Uh, I think I was bored in lockdown. <laughs> and I decided to create a page called Spayworks. And it's one of my, one of my demonstrations is called The Only Way Spay, and it's basically driving the message on that spare casting it will enhance your fishing. Uh, but I wanted to create like a hub, like a learning centre where we've all started out fishing and gone and bought a, a setup that's wrong, it's not matched, it's not well balanced. And I wanted to create like a, a hub where people can come, whether it's trout or salmon, anything related to fishing, setups, where they can come in there and post a question and then more experienced anglers can come in there and with the replies. And I don't want it to be a Chris Egg show. I don't want it to be a guideline show. I want other manufacturers to be in there. If they want to put adverts in there, fine. You know, if they're offering rod reel and line setups, if shops want to go in there and post, that's fine. But I want it to be a place where people can go for help and be like a learning centre, like an up. So we've had some great debates. We had a debate on should you use a treble hook or should you use a double hook when salmon fishing. Now, I actually know a guy in Iceland, if you've got a treble hook on, first thing he does is pulls a pair of pliers out and chops one at legs off. He's convinced that using a double is the way forward. Uh, and we've had other things about do, we, do you fight a salmon on an eye rod or do you bend it more into side? Really interesting stuff. So there's not just stuff in there for beginners, but even intermediate and advanced. And that's what I'm trying to do is create a... Uh, a learning up, a centre where people can go and gain information from experienced animals. Nice. And does that mean it's more salmon-centric or does it cover some of the stuff that we've just talked about from a trout point of view? No, I mean, you can spare cast using a trout run. It's exactly the same mechanics. It's, you know, it's just we use two-handed on a two-handed run, we use one-handed on a single-handed run. So, yeah, it's just... it's just I, I, I set that name up, Spare Works, because for me, Spare Works... 
So it's something to trout, grilling, it's something to even salt water. If somebody wants to post a question in there, it, I must admit, it has, seems to have got a big salmon following, but it's def- definitely not just for salmon anglers. Nice. Uh, well, well, that's really good. Yeah, what I'm going to say, what I might do is I might put a couple more staff, uh, some experienced guys, I might set them up so that if I'm not available to answer questions or uh, that they can, they can answer questions so people get a quick turnaround on, on answers. Nice, nice. That's really cool. And you talked about lines there, and we've talked about them previously. And one of the tips, you know, we've always tried to say is if you're buying a new rod, obviously try and try it beforehand. But I always think one of the first places or one of the best places to look is if that rod you have bought, uh, the manufacturer builds fly lines or makes produces fly lines as well that's a really really good place to start isn't it and i'm suspecting guidelines exactly the same on that on that front yeah, well, obviously guideline make numerous rods and numerous lines and obviously when life who's head of product development is testing the equipment is using these lines on on guideline rods so they, do, they are matched to go well hand in hand but I've seen Fario Elite, for example, used on various trout rods, Sage, all, all different uh, manufacturers' trout rods, and they still work well, but they are designed and matched to go together. So, yeah, yeah I would think, yeah, if I were going out and buying a, a rod and reel setup, if, if I could buy one from a manufacturer that did both, I would be quite confident that it were going to work on it. Excellent. And I was just thinking about the debate you said about playing a fish with a rod high and from the side. And the side thing's kind of interesting because I've been fortunate enough to do a little bit of steelhead fishing. And that's how the guys like um, a steelhead to be played. And I've done it over here and it has worked as well. I'm not always as confident because I've so few to go at that I want to. But it works. Where do you stand on that, just as an aside while we're Uh, talking about it? So funny story. We we have had numerous conversations with guys at Guideline uh, Gym and other guys in uh, Guideline team. And we tend to try and like low rod or bent to side. But I was in Iceland a couple of years ago, and I was going down on pool on the Ranga, and it's absolutely, it was absolutely stuffed with fish. And I hooked six fish, and I played them on the side, and I lost every fish beat. Oh, and I, my head well. was red, and I, I'm thinking, you're trying to cut that cord again. I'm thinking, what can I do? What am I doing wrong? What am I doing different? I thought, next time I hook a fish, I'm going to eye rod it. I'm just going to try something different. I'm going to eye rod it. Next three fish I ate, I put all, everyone on bank. It's just, uh, you couldn't write it, do you know what I mean? But I must admit, I, I, I try to play low or to the side if I can. I have, I have this thing in my head, if, I'm, if I've got the rod high, that I'm maybe pulling the hook upwards and potentially making it come out. Nice. That's good and fair arguments for both sides of it as well. Yeah. And um, yeah, yeah, it is one because that's again, my mind's thinking, oh, was it the way the fish were taking when they didn't stick? Was it there? And, and that's the wonderful thing about this, isn't it? We'll never know. Yeah. <laughs> we'll, never, yeah. we'll never know. You've got to, again, it's, you've got to be confident in what works for you. It might not work for the next guy, but when you hook a fish, you've got to play in. You know, you go. I think you revert back to what you've had success with. And if I'm honest, I've had more success bending, uh, holding the rod row, uh, rod low, and playing them into the side. But just on that day that I tried something different in Iceland, uh, the eye, the eye method worked fine. Yeah, nice. And folks, this um, page Spayworks is a Facebook page, and it's S P E Y. W-O-R-X, in case you want to search that out and join up. Uh, that's correct. Is that, Chris? Yeah, that's correct. That's correct, Pete. Spear works with an X. Yeah. Excellent. Fantastic. Now, we've touched on Cape Verde. Uh, salt water, is, I, I get the sense that's something close to your heart as well. Uh, love salt water fishing. I mean, what would you rather be doing? Stood freezing your bit, uh, butt off. For grill, you know, I stuck up in front of a skiff in a pair of shorts in sunshine. Yeah, yeah, I love saltwater fishing, and I've fished all around the world. Uh, love Dubai. Uh, there's a great company out there called Ocean Active uh, that I've fished with quite a few times. Funny story, I was in Dubai, and I was due to fish with uh, Nick, and I was laid on the beach with my wife, and 
we stayed on the farm and I could see a ball of bait fish getting pushed at surface. There were birds coming in, feeding from top. And I, I looked at my wife and I went, I'm going to get me rod. And she went, Chris, you're fishing tomorrow, can't you just have a day off? I went, but that's about bait, uh, the baiting, the pushing fish up to surface. There's water activity, I'm going to get me rod. So I went and got my rod, strung it up, and I'm watching this, uh, these, this, this, these fish move around. And you could see them jumping through the surface. So I, th- I said, I'm going to walk up the beach and have a cast from top. She went, wait a minute, I'll, I'll come up with you. So we walked up to the top of the beach, and as, as this uh, ball of fish came early towards us, I made a couple of casts. First cast, I felt hook up, but then it just went, boom, it had gone. So when I pulled it in, it just snapped the line off. So I made a short trace and put a fly on. Couple more casts, needle fish, couple more casts again, another needle fish, and they have got to be the smelliest fish ever, Pete. I don't know if you've ever caught them. They're absolutely on. <laughs> anyway, I persevered and then I ate something big and I said to my wife, this is a big fish. And as I managed to get it in with a barracuda, so what I think were happening were needlefish were getting pushed up by a barracuda and birds were fishing, uh, feeding off top. So I'm unhooking this barracuda and I'm being gentle with it. And as I'm unhooking it and putting it back and I'm watching my fingers, a big boat pulls from around the corner, a big red and white boat, and they're all dressed in white Arabs with a dress on. My wife says to me, Chris, they're watching you. And it said security down side. And I went, maybe because everybody's seen anybody fly fish before. But I don't know why they're watching us. We're not really doing anything wrong. So she went, I, won't, I wouldn't fish again if I were you. So I broke the rod down. And as we set off walking down the beach, and as we're walking down the beach, this boat's tracking us. So we are walking back towards the hotel and this boat's tracking us. And she went, the following is, I went to her, Bev, they can't really miss us, can, can they? She said, why? I said, well, you might as well have a flare because she'd got an hat on, a sun hat on. What size of a sombrero? So I said, take that, take that hat off. Look at that. We walked down the beach and we, when we got back into where the hotel and there were bodies, they sort of lost us. So we laid back on some bed and boat pulled away. So I never thought any more about it. And then that night... We were going into the city uh, to do some shopping. And as we're pulling off Palm, you know the big motorway signs that light up on motorway? It's, there was a sign and it said, strictly no fishing on the Palm. So we were, I weren't nearly on your podcast. I was nearly on that uh, popular TV programme, Banged Up Abroad. <laughs> <laughs> I thought if uh, someone was watching, you might think, oh, they're enjoying the loops I'm popping out, so I'll throw it a little bit further. <laughs> and that's an interesting point, isn't it? You said you were with your, your wife um, fishing. It's a it's a interesting one to do, isn't it? Combining fishing and family holidays, isn't it? And it can work really well, but sometimes you've, you're feeling, like you say, you're seeing the bait balls going it's, it's kind of a interesting balance to to be able to p- play if you're holidaying with a, a wife or partner or whoever it may be it's a it's a, a interesting one to try and manage isn't it yeah it's difficult but i mean she's absolutely brilliant my wife if i came in and said to her oh, i've got chancery rod in scotland next week uh, what and what do you think she'd say yeah well i don't think what i say matters chris <laughs> so she knows you she's sort of you're going to go anywhere do you know what I mean and she calls me uh, Funtime Frankie she always says what's Funtime Frankie got on this week because she knows I'm here there and everywhere fishing and whatever now love her to pieces so oh, fantastic and the fish I've always and I've not caught one for a, a long long time I say a while anyway um, tarpon any thoughts on those and uh, we, we had in the magazine about almost how you could in some way compare it with salmon in the way that they're hard to hook um, you know we count jumps we count takes we count those sort of things do you have any thought on tarpon and have you been lucky enough to um, lock into one no, I've, uh, I've fished out in Florida. The sort of the camp out. I've got a Leslie Holmes who, who mentored me for my masters. Has got his own business out in Florida, and uh, the, you, you'll, when you're in Florida, you'll see boat after boat after boat. They just camped, waiting for tarpon coming up that coast. Uh, it's unbelievable. But again, uh, yeah, it's something I'd like to do. Uh, but when I go, I don't want to sit in a boat waiting for that opportunity for a day because 
I don't get that much chance to fish, so I want to fish for other species that we might we might catch. You know, it's like I enjoy saltwater fishing for I love flats fishing, so sight fishing or sight fishing from a uh, uh, skiff or whatever. But I've actually done uh, big billfish tuna and you know billfish uh, in in Kenya. And there's a lot of time, although I enjoy it, there's a lot of time wasted, you know, just trolling for hours on end with teasers out, just waiting for one sailfish to show its face. So I prepare, I like to be more active than playing the waiting game, if I'm honest. So I think with tarpon, you've got to sit there, you've got to be super patient. Same with things like billfish, you've got to be prepared to sit on a boat with teasers out dragging it back in the boat for hours upon end just for maybe one or two shots, if you're lucky, if you're lucky. Yeah, yeah. no, that's fair enough. And that comes around, I guess, to what we were saying about the salmon and limited times we have on trips and things. I'm a real champion of the underdogs, though, and um, Snook is a favourite of mine. Do do they come onto your radar? Love Snook, love Snook. Uh, they're absolutely looking to a Snook and... Hold on, because it's going to kill us. You know what I mean? They're real strong fish, super fish. Or fishing in Florida off a skiff, probably 4 a.m. in the morning, it was absolutely pitch black. And Leslie had fixed, fixed me up with a, a, a guy who'd got a skiff, and he, he took me out. And pulled up to this these jetty speed, and there were lights on the jetties, and you could see activity, fish slapping surface. So, again, it was fish pushing a bait ball up to shore, under these under these jetties. And he said to me, he said, just throw your fly onto the beach. And I said, what we're we going to catch on there? A crab boy, joking, you know what I mean? And he went, no, I'll leave it there. Literally, within five minutes, bait ball got shoved into that area. It went strip, strip. So I'm stripping, pitch black, all of a sudden, bang, and snook. They're just super fighting fish. Really, really strong. Yeah, yeah. really like them. Probably yeah. pound for pound as good a fighting fish as you'll... you'll you look, you know. Yeah. Although I would say yellowfin tuna is probably the hardest fighting fish I've got. And, and that's like not that. one that's that's not one that's really on the radar, is it? As well, in the sense of traditional saltwater fishing of saltwater fly fishing. Sorry. No, I stumbled into them. We were in Kenya, and uh, all of a sudden, again, birds hitting surface and fish. You could see them uh, pushing bay ball to the surface. And we, it was tuna. So the guy, the captain, managed to get the boat into a position and he cut the engines because tuna just will not come near boat when engines is on, in my experience. And I've had that on a couple of occasions. And as soon as the engines were cut and we drifted over the board, I hope to feel. Uh, but what amazes me is how the fight. You, you know, you look at queen fish in, in uh, Dubai and it wants to fight you on surface, surface. It's throwing itself about on surface. You're same with the same with the sailfish. But a tuna, you know when you've up one because the only way it's going is down and it'll just empty your reel. It's just just straight down to the bottom. And you just, there's just no stopping them. Wow. So strong. Yeah, that sounds really cool. Yeah, like the sound of that. So tell me something. Um, I've got few quick fire questions for you um double-handed or single-handed rod which is your favorite to be honest Pete I'm really really comfortable around both and I love both trout fish single trout salt and I love my salmon as well if I had to make a push over the last couple of years I've been heavily into salmon so I would have to probably slightly lean towards Dublin at the moment but that can change that can change. Nice, nice. And it goes with conditions, doesn't it? I'm similar to you that if it's good for salmon, salmon's what I'm interested in. If it's no good for salmon, then it's trout. And it, that's where we're lucky where we fish for all these species, aren't we? Yeah, definitely. I mean, so through winter, I will pike grayling. Then through season, I'll be sort of trout and then saltwater, salmon. So, yeah, I'm lucky that I fish for a lot of different species and I'm lucky that I get to travel to some uh, fantastic places. Nice. So we're going to drill down some more then. Trout or salmon? Which one? Well, this at this moment in time, because I would, if I've picked a double-handed rod, I've got to go salmon, king salmon at this moment in time. Nice. Perfect. Dream destination? Uh, I've been to the Maldives on holiday. 
And I went to an island where you couldn't fish, but I think I would love to go to islands further north, I believe, are even better. I mean, it's such a stunning place, but to be able to go there and fish, yeah, I think that would be that would be definitely on my list. Nice. No, very, very good choice. I've been lucky enough to fish where you can fish there, and I can recommend it. And was even lucky enough to catch a, a small permit there as well, yeah. an Indo permit, which was really, really cool. Um so fishing's always been a part of your life. You know, you've grown up living near to water and it shaped you as an angler from a very early age. Are you loving it as much as you've always done it? Probably more now. I fell in, I fell in love with fly fishing on a holiday to Wales. And when I came back, the only thing I want to do is fly fish. And every fish that I catch now is caught on a fly. That's all. I don't touch any other method whatsoever. Yeah, I yeah. Will, yeah. I, I, I've always loved it, yeah. I'm similar to you that I only really use a fly rod. And in the olden days when you had to take the exam and had to do some spinning, I was absolutely terrible because I just didn't. And I nearly, for the AAP guy exam, you had to do it. And that was the only part of the exam that I was frightened about at that time because I'd so deeply prepared for it. And I, I can't explain the relief when they said, we're not going to have this in the exam anymore. Yeah. And I, I was just walking on air from that moment onwards that I didn't do it. So, But like you say, there's so many species, and you've touched on them. There's, we're so lucky to be able to go after so many species, aren't we, with the fly rod? Yeah, definitely. And it's just – for me, it's just it's – a bit. It's a bit purist, so I suppose I'm a purist in a way. I just want to, I want to catch it on uh, on a fly. Yeah, I think that's what yeah. drives that's what drives me. Nice, absolutely nothing wrong with that, Chris. We've spoken for over an hour now, and it's you've just given us so much information uh, across a wide variety of. Uh, formats of our fishing which has been great i've got a sense of you as a person as well um how can people if they want to get in touch with you we talked about spayworks how can people find you um what are your social media handles and website if they want to book you up for a lesson yeah so uh, my website is www.flyfishingwithchrisegg.co.uk uh you'll find me chris egg fly fishing or chris egg on facebook and now I'm Spayworks Chris Egg because I recently had my uh, Instagram account hacked, so I've had to switch it across to Spayworks Chris Egg on Instagram. Uh, I do a little bit on Twitter, and I've also got a YouTube channel as well. Nice. And for everyone, that is Chris Haig. That's Haig is spelled H-A-G-U-E. Um, so you'll be able to find him there for... for- guiding for some lessons and everything else chris it's been absolutely fantastic talking with you and getting so much great information i know listeners are going to um get their teeth into this one so thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today yeah no problem pete and thanks very much for having me it's been uh, nice to speak with you well i'm pleased i could fit in with your international jet left jet life your jet lifestyle so i've been fortunate to do that chris thank you so much it's been brilliant talking with you today thank you Pete. speak so everyone this has been the fly culture podcast i hope you've enjoyed this one as much as me i think there's loads that we can pick through there i'm going to go and find some new leaders to try out as well so thank you so much for listening and there'll be plenty more episodes of the fly culture podcast very very soon thanks for listening The Fly Culture Podcast is brought to you in association with Fly Culture, a quarterly print magazine. For more information, please visit flyculturemag.com. You can also find Fly Culture on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter.